you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the com. The com. Welcome to the big show, our family and friends. For 15 years, we've been bringing the Chris Voss Show. What more do you want from us, people? Two to three new shows a weekday, 10 to 15 a week, bringing you all the greatest brilliant minds, the billionaires, the CEOs, the authors, the Pulitzer Prize winners, the astronauts, the people who vice presidents, all the greatest people are on this show. And then there's just little old me. <laughs> uh so as always we uh ask you beg of you we require of you it's not really a requirement we just say that on the show to go refer the show to your family friends and relatives go to goodreads.com for chess chris foss youtube.com for chess chris foss linkedin.com for chess chris foss the big old LinkedIn, linkedin newsletter over there if i can even pronounce it right and uh also, Chris Voss won on, on the Tickety Talk. Give us five-star reviews on iTunes because we, uh, I don't know, we I, we smell good. Uh, we have an amazing author on the show. He's going to be talking about this uh, gentleman you may have heard of. There's been a few books written of him and some history, and he I can think he did some important things somewhere in our life, and we're going to be talking about his uh, new book that just comes out today, America, October, or it comes out tomorrow, October 3rd. 2023 i was paying some bills for tomorrow so <laughs> it's actually the second uh but october 3rd 2023 the newest book is by jonathan shapiro it's called how to be abe lincoln seven steps to leading a legendary life and we'll be talking about his amazing insights because uh he did some really cool things that ab lincoln guy uh and uh we're going to find out more about what going into his life and it, some of the insights and how you can be like him. Maybe you can even buy that stovetop uh, pipe or stovetop hat so you can take it, wear it as well. Since 2000, Jan Jonathan Shapiro has written and produced some of the television's most iconic legal dramas, including HBO's The Undoing, Amazon Prime's Goliath, uh, NBC Peacock's The Calling, an Emmy and Humanitas Award winner. Uh, his other television and credits include Peacock's Mr. Mercedes, based on Stephen King novels, NBC's series The Blacklist, Fox's Justice, NBC's Life, and the AV series Boston Legal, The Practice, and Big Sky. His first play, Sisters-in-Law, premiered in 2019. He's the author of three books, including the novel Deadly Force 2015 and the memoir Lawyers, Liars, and the Art of Storytelling 2014. And he's currently an adjunct law professor at the UCLA Law of School. <laughs> School of Law. I thought I'd have some fun with at the end. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very well, Chris. I, I, I thank you on behalf of a grateful nation. 2,000 <laughs> interviews, 15 years. What it, cri what crime did you commit to get this sentence? That's a that's a good question. I've been serving uh, judges uh, orders times for all this time, and I guess I get the bracelet off uh, here next year or something. That would be a great moment. So there's that. There's that. So welcome to the show. Give us your dot com so you can uh, people can find you on the interwebs. Uh, you can uh, best place to find me is on the. Uh, we have our own podcast called How to Be Abe Lincoln. 
on Apple Tunes, Spotify, and uh, you can you can reach me there. Is what you can do. There you go. And I must get a, a fan plug in the movie, the show Goliath was just uh, that was so great. Oh, thank you. It was it was so awesome. I, you know, I uh, Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, what a great actor. I mean, uh, over his career, but it, it was just a great show. I was I was stuck on it. I was just compelled and sucked uh, into it from the get go. Nice to hear. I appreciate it. That was a, yeah. that was a lot. Of, was a lot of fun that show. There you go. Uh, so your newest book, uh, How to Be Abe Lincoln. Uh, give us a thirty thousand overview of the book, please, if you would. So <clears throat> we live in a time that's that's almost, but not quite, thankfully, as divided as Lincoln's time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rather than curse the darkness, uh, I thought, well, I'll try and light a candle and curse the darkness. I'll do both uh, and write a book that, that I think could actually give us what we are desperate for, which is not the heroic Lincoln, but the practical Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I think Abe Lincoln, you're quite right, did so many wonderful things. The most important thing he did was sort of write the script for us to uh, figure out how to get out of the situation we're in right now. And, and mm -hmm. the book, How to Be Abe Lincoln, gives you the seven steps that I think Lincoln took to be Abe Lincoln. There you go. He's not a superhero. He, he had no secret powers. There was no secret conspiracy. The guy took seven very concrete steps that any human being could take and lead a legendary life. So that's what the book is about. There you go. He did quite a few things. So uh, the seven steps, uh, what motivated you want to write the book? What brought you to, drew you to the story? So uh, I've been a lifelong uh, unpaid, unprofessional Lincoln scholar. Mm. Uh, I have a master's in history degree, a master's degree in history on 18th century political history. So not Lincoln, but I, I've just always thought, and I'm sure we could have a debate about it, that he's the greatest, he's the GOAT. He's, he's the greatest of all time in terms of Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at a time when we're desperate for leadership and we're desperate to end the gridlock and we're desperate to have people who put country over self, I thought, well, Abe Lincoln's the best example of it. How did he do it? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, there's over 60,000 books that have been written about <laughs> Just a few. Yeah, it takes a little <laughs> bit of chutzpah, which is a Latin term. Mm -hmm. To write a book about something that there's already been 60,000 of them. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a very clear intention here and motive and, and plan, which was to write a Lincoln book that's never been written. I never found a how-to book. And uh, so that's what it is. It's, it's, I read, I love John Meacham's book on Lincoln that came out this year. I talk about it in my book, Let There Be Light. I thought it was a great book. Ah. It's 723 pages. They don't fly by. There are a lot of footnotes. Uh, I would read it at night and fall asleep, and it would fall on me, and I thought I was being attacked. Wow. This, this book is a uh, more useful, more entertaining, if I can be so bold, uh, more practical approach to Lincoln. And there you go. It's for everybody. 60,000 books have been written on Lincoln. That's Lincoln. astounding. Lincoln. You know, I was working on a book on Lincoln, uh, the best way to uh, be Lincoln, and it was uh, it was basically uh, around the premise of uh, don't go to the theater, eh? Uh, uh, <laughs> too I soon? I too soon? A little soon. A little, a little soon. soon. You know, I, when I worked, I, I was a federal prosecutor for about 10 years. And oh, really? I, my, my, uh, the Justice Department was right by Lincoln's uh, 
last resting place in Ford's Theater. And mm -hmm. uh, I would on occasion pop in there. Uh, and, and I was always interested in the students who were very aware, young students, who, who knew a lot about the assassination and knew nothing about the man. Uh -huh. And so partly this is a book to, to help rectify that problem. There you go. And we were talking before the show, I pulled this up just now. The, uh, the recently on September 25th of 2023, the tickets went up, uh, in auction, sold at auction for Ford's theater. The night Lincoln was assassinated for 262,500 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was wow. in the, 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 the tragedy there is of course, two things. One, uh, Lincoln had already seen American cousin. So really? It's not like he had to go back. The, yeah. but the, other, the other thing that's that's tragic is General Ulysses S. Grant was supposed to attend the theater with the Lincolns. Oh, really? He and his wife, Julia. Wow. Mary Todd Lincoln, who was prone to jealousy, didn't like Julia Grant. And so the Grants begged off and didn't go. Wow. The tragedy of that is, had Grant been there, he had an entire... Uh, brigade yeah, he would have had us protecting him and Lincoln wouldn't have gotten close to the to the Lincolns so yeah. my, my takeaway there is yeah jealousy doesn't pay there you go there you go uh, looking at the uh, tickets I have to tell you Chris that's not in the book that's just some free advice I'm just offering you're listening that is, that's interesting though I mean you just I look I love these little tidbits because you think god how would history have changed what yeah right. What would the arc of history have been different, and you know, would we be in a different place today, um, and uh, stuff like that? A, you just touched upon the, the most important, fascinating, agonizing alternative history question in American history. There you go. Had, yeah. had Lincoln lived, we know what his plans were for reconstruction and reconciliation. He issued them when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, mm -hmm. and you know, in the book, I say that Lincoln was more than almost anything else, uh, motivated by love and mm -hmm. a, a Christian reconciliation of forgiveness. There you go. How, di how different the country would have been. Yeah. Uh, maybe, no, that's a, that's a bad joke. I'm not going to go there. I will do this one though. Um, I'm looking at the tickets online and it looks like uh, the seats were in the non-shooting section. So okay. there's, that's, there's, you do know, <laughs> I'm not the guest to talk about the Lincoln Ford Theater tickets. I just, I just, I, I, I just had to pop that joke, you know. Okay, to, it's topical. Um, so, uh, tell us about your origin story before we dig some more in the book. Uh, tell us about your life. We kind of uh, cruised through it in the in the bio, but what got you down this road, and what made you kind of over time become a real Lincoln love? Uh, it's funny because I sort of tell the story in the book. I was sick one day from. Calabash Elementary School in the beautiful LA Unified School District. And I was home in bed and the TV was on and I was watching an old John Ford movie, Young Mr. Lincoln, starring Henry Fonda. Mm -hmm. And at some point as a kid, I had read the uh, kid's book, Meet Abe Lincoln. So mm -hmm. this was, that movie had such a profound impact on me. Mm -hmm. that I, I think that's when I first started about thinking of law school and mm -hmm. uh if my oldest son is named abraham for abraham lincoln oh, really it's it's been kind of a lifelong uh interest and, and and i think 
I try to talk about this in the book that the, the reason Lincoln is so appealing is he's so human. Mm-hmm. He had a great sense of humor. He was considered the, the greatest storyteller of his generation. People used to go to the White House not to meet the president, but to hear his jokes. Really? Uh, he suffered from significant depressions to the point where his friends had to take the razor out of his out of his house because they were afraid he was going to kill himself with it. Really? Wow. Uh, he made mistakes. He was sometimes quiet when he should have spoken up and spoke up when he should have stayed quiet. He's one of us. Yeah. And, and, and the idea that this loving, conflict-adverse man had to become the commander-in-chief in the most brutal butchering in the history of the United States, and that he did it because his moral compass said he had to do it, mm-hmm. you know, is, is uh, beyond Shakespearean. It's it's the it's the it's the greatest American story, and and so I, you asked me how'd you get interested in Lincoln? Uh, how can anybody not be interested in Lincoln? He's the, he's the best and the brightest this country ever produced. That's true. Washington's been calling me. He's upset that you said that uh, <laughs> uh, that Lincoln was the goat. So uh, well, Washington, um, Washington and I have beef. I'll so, forward his emails to you. Yeah, no, he's uh, got issues. I, yeah. Yeah. He's never gotten over that wooden tea thing. Uh, you know, you date Martha one time before they get married. I know. That's that's I know. The, so, uh, in the book, uh, did you, was one of the motivations in the book, um, you know, with Lincoln's time, with what he was dealing with is we were on the cusp of being at each other's throats as, as brothers and sisters, as what we know as Americans. Um, and we're kind of there today with what's going on with our politics and um and uh you know it basically was a great attempt to uh, a great as in not as not in like it was awesome but like it was a grand a great attempt to um destroy this country and separate it into two different countries do you do you think that uh, that was a bit of motivation for you too as well to try and see uh, if we can that was the main motivation to write the there book. you go i was always going to write a lincoln book in my mind mm-hmm. The time finally came, huh? It, well, <clears throat> life is funny. Unfortunately, my my father became very ill and, and mm-hmm. passed away in April, and so I was I'm sorry. The last few months of his life, I was over at my old family house uh, helping mom out, and and uh, so I found my old AP history notes and oh, really books. And but what what really troubled me was I kept seeing old friends who worse than disagreeing with me politically. Didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. They were done with politics. They're sick of politics. They hate both <laughs> sides. They're just done. Where I'm at. And that's bad news for a democracy. You you, you yeah. can't have that. Yeah. If all if all the if all the citizens wash their hands of it, then you know who's in charge? Uh, the the people who have their own personal interests. Mm-hmm. In yeah. So I thought, okay, now is the time to just do whatever I can to remind people. Hey, you know, Abe Lincoln actually has everything to say about this moment. And every aspect of his life is a great example of how we can get back to being the country that I think we're supposed to be. There you go. And I mean, he was so gracious about um, the war and winning, uh, even the rules he made of prisoners being held. And and at the end, he didn't really want to punish 
uh, the South. He he was more like, okay, look, we settled our differences. Let's all get back to trying to be Americans. I think if I understand his history correctly, That's tell right. us tell us some of the seven steps or tease out to us some of the stories that are in the book. So uh, the I like what you said about graciousness because that, mm -hmm. that that was almost going to be one of the steps because it was such a hallmark of his character. So the idea is, what are the seven steps that Lincoln took to be Abe Lincoln? And and, and there's seven. And I'm going to tell you right now, the, the the first letter of each step spells out Lincoln. Does it really? Yeah. And if you think, well, that's goofy, uh, that's right. It's mm. supposed to be goofy. And uh, I'll tell you why. It's a book about Lincoln. And Lincoln liked to be goofy. And he was always goofy on purpose in mm. order to advertise and brand himself and to make a point that would stick. Yeah. So, for example, he would always ride into town on a horse that was too small on purpose. Huh. He always wore the stovetop hat because it became iconic. Mm -hmm. He carried a green umbrella with his name stitched into it in white so that people would remember his name. <laughs> he joked that he was the ugliest man in the world and, and oh, man. once said that if he had two faces, would he wear the one he had on? <laughs> he also made himself the subject of more photographs than any other American in history up to that point. He created this vast body of IP that could be used by newspapers. So he was a guy who understood public image and understood how to craft it. And so he would do something like the acrostic Lincoln. So the first mm -hmm. step to be Lincoln, I think, and the most salient aspect of his character that all his contemporaries talk about is laughter. To be uh -huh. Lincoln, you have to be able to laugh. That guy was a Henny Youngman, Shecky Green comic. He never stopped telling jokes. Sounds like he missed his career, man. He should have done the tour, you know, hit, the, are, hit, hit comedy. Are, that's funny you say that. There were contemporaries who thought that he should have and could have been a professional humor writer. There you go. Uh, I mean, he, he, and, and there were others who hated his humor and thought he diminished the dignity of the office who claimed he suffered from what we would now call Tourette syndrome. I mean, he literally could not stop. Really? Wow. One of, one of the things he said was that he needed humor to live. Mm. That if he didn't laugh, he'd say he'd cry. And then later uh, in his administration, he said, if it wasn't for laughter, he'd kill himself. Wow. So to be Lincoln, you have to laugh. Well, what does it mean to laugh? I think, that laughter is a sign not only of great intelligence, but also of great empathy. I've never really known. My wife wrote a, a wonderful book about stand-up comedy uh, a number of years ago called Comic Lives. Mm -hmm. and, uh, a number of my friends are, are comics. I've never met one of them who wasn't very, very bright and also very, very sensitive and very dark. And that was Lincoln, right? That, that was Lincoln. Lincoln would have loved the, uh, I think, the uh, the jokes you were telling earlier, uh, and so in in my in my in my book uh, on the first step about laughter, I say that a sense of humor is like the other five senses. It's something we're all born with, mm -hmm. and people say I just don't have a sense of humor. Of course, you have a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. You just don't have a very finely developed sense of humor. Yeah. All of us can improve our hearing, can improve our listening, can. And can improve our sense of humor by studying what Lincoln did to be funny, why he did it, why it mattered so much to him, how mm -hmm. he did it, and how we can 
improve our own sense of humor because it's important. It matters. You can't be Lincoln without the empathy and intelligence that's needed to be able to laugh, especially at yourself. And You're I right. You comedy. I don't see a lot of self-deprecation on our political landscape right now. That's true. That's true. You know, comedy is multifaceted from the aspects you talked about with character. Um, and it, it takes a lot to be able to laugh at yourself. And a lot of comedians suffer from depression. You know, yes. a lot of comedians I know, they suffer from depression, traumas, and and everything else. And it, it's almost a way to medicate. I mean, I'm the same way. When I hear people laugh, it's like fucking crack. It's that. Yeah. It's it's cracked to the brain where you're like oh they they laugh I got I got more of that um, right. it's, a coping, it's a coping mechanism mm -hmm. it's it's George Carlin uh, in my wife's book gave a great quote that I cite in the book Carlin mm -hmm. said that stand up comedy is uh, like jazz America's greatest contribution and innovation in the arts but Carlin said comedy is even better than jazz because literally. The comic can, in a split second, change the entire tenor of the piece. Yeah, uh, yeah. and Lincoln was a Lincoln was a stand-up, and and I compare Lincoln in that sense to other presidents, and I point out that you know Reagan had a very good sense of humor and like honed his comedy and was often self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. I also point out in the book Lincoln at least until his early 30s, could be very cutting. Mm -hmm. be a real insult comic, which is really contradictory to our image of him. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the event that changed him forever in terms of what he laughed about and, and how he would be funny. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about, you know, whatever you feel about Donald Trump, you're missing the point if you don't recognize how he has used laughter often at the expense of others to do much of what Lincoln did with his humor. In what way? Well, if I tell you that, you're not going to buy the book. Oh, that's right. Well, we're teasing the book folks. So you got to buy the book and read it. I'm supposed to just give it away. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to save myself some reading here, Jonathan, but I no, I, <laughs> I, was, I was I was I was sure yeah. you're queuing me up for something, so I I bit the I bit the queue up. No, I will. Um, I will. No, I was. In, uh, in, okay. That Lincoln and Lincoln, you know, Trump compared himself to Lincoln, mm -hmm. if you recall, and surprised right. Trump found himself to be, you know, a worthy counterpart, if not the best president since Lincoln. So I compare Trump's use of humor to Lincoln's use of humor, and I talk mm -hmm. about how they were similar and how both men in a sense are the two presidents who used humor the most effectively. Really? I don't think anyone except maybe Reagan is close, but you know, I, I, <clears throat> I married a, a comedy writer. I, I married a woman who wrote a book about comedy. I would, I, I would, I, my, my idea of hell is, is a day without laughing. That's true. Yeah. Me Lincoln the same way. Mm hmm. But Lincoln's laughter was always to build community. Lincoln's laughter oh. was always to make himself empathetic and available. Lincoln's mm -hmm. humor was always to bring people into the tent. Trump's humor isn't and never has been and never will be. Yeah. And yeah. it says more about the times we live in mm -hmm. and our sensibilities than it does about either man. There you go. Well, we certainly would have been a different country if Abe Lincoln had uh, you know, moved to L.A. and worked the comedy store. And then go for he, president. Uh, he, he, I, I think he would be um, 
on medication. <laughs> I, I, I say that not facetiously. We know that he did ask a doctor friend of his if the doctor had anything he could give him to really? help him through his depressions. Well, he could have got some from Robin Williams if he went to the comedy store. So there you go. Uh, there's a lot of that going around. Or he could have worked SNL. You know, Chris, again, opportunities. you could run some of these things by the producer. You don't have to say <laughs> Okay. All right. Then. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you want to tease out, do you want to tease out all the, the, uh, no, I'll go quicker. I'll go sure. quicker. So, so the, sec the second step uh, is improve. Abe Lincoln was an absolute monster when it came to wanting to self-improve from uh -huh. the time he could speak. His stepmother, Sarah said he wanted to learn how to do things and how to get better. Mm -hmm. And he read self-help books. We know he read self-help books. And he annotated them and gave them to Mary Todd. Mm. And so I'll, I'll, I won't belabor the point except to say one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think we've lost the thread that used to be so important to the American character, which is self-improvement. Mm. When I go to my bookstore, if I can find one, and I see all the self-help books, they're all about emotional health. Mm. The history of this country is about how can we improve our abilities to make a living? How can we improve the highways? How can we improve the civilization we're creating? Abe Lincoln, uneducated, no formal schooling, is the only U.S. president to have obtained a patent. And wow. he patent from the U.S. Patent Office for the most complicated and massive project to free uh, ships on the Mississippi that had ground on, on, uh, oh, on the right. riverbank, right? Mm -hmm. Abe Lincoln accepted a job as a surveyor, realizing he knew nothing about surveying. He got a book, and I cite the book, and you can look at the book online, mm -hmm. and I challenge anyone in my book to go into that book and do any of the algebra equations in that book. Abe Lincoln in six weeks taught himself to be a surveyor with no tutor and no teacher and did such a good job of it that you can still walk the fields he surveyed in Springfield. And according to professional surveyors, he did an amazing job, particularly in light of the fact that he didn't really have great equipment. Huh. So, Abe Lincoln improvement, America, we got to get back to that. Uh, the N is navigate. And uh, if you asked Abe Lincoln what he was most proud of before he became president, he would have told you he was most proud of the fact that he had been a riverboat pilot who, without any training, built a riverboat, loaded it up with a bunch of farm animals, and took that boat a thousand miles to New Orleans where he sold the livestock. Without maps, just by learning how to navigate the river through common sense and wisdom and talking to people. And so rivers made Abe Lincoln. Rivers are a great metaphor for life's journey. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I talk about in the book that Lincoln understood was the sacred power of skills. Uh, learning how to do something, learning how to improve yourself gives you a great sense of self-worth, but also teaches you you can do anything. Right? Mm -hmm. Lincoln was made by rivers and by navigation. And if you can't navigate, if you can't go from here to there in a reasonable way, you're never going to go anywhere. It drives me crazy that we all rely now on GPS and ways and technology and nobody can read a map. 
And <laughs> What's it, the seems, it seems like a small thing, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes to a second part of the American character that used to matter, but doesn't seem to matter as much anymore, which is self-reliance. Yeah. Right. Emerson's great essay on Americans were supposed to be people who could learn to do something and they just do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Now that kind of self-reliance, if I use the term self-reliance and learning how to do things, you immediately think about what preppers for the apocalypse <laughs> or survivalists. Yeah. That's a problem. So I want to get back to the old notion of self-reliance. So that's the, that's the end. The C is for collaboration. Abe Lincoln and the great late, Senator John McCain understood that you can never do anything legendary yourself, Mm -hmm. but you can with other people. And this has been a hard lesson for me to learn because I agree with Dorothy Parker that hell is other people. (laughs) Lincoln Lincoln was not a born collaborator. He was Uh a wolf. He could be a loner. He, He enjoyed his own company, but he learned to do it. And he learned to collaborate with the most horrible people imaginable. His his law partner for 14 years, Billy Herndon, mm-hmm. who did everything for Lincoln, was a flat-out alcoholic with all of an alcoholic's character defects. Mm-hmm. Mary Todd, I think they had a, I think they had a good marriage, hmm. but I also think nobody knows what happens in a marriage. But he was able to collaborate with Mary Todd Lincoln and gave her credit for his election to the president. Wow! So. Collaboration, how you do it. One way you have to do it is by not making yourself the star of every single thing. Uh. And and I talk about how to be a great collaborator. Which brings us to O, which you'll like because you're a you're like me, you're a you're a you're a uh, you're a gad fly gad about type guy. Mm-hmm. O is for objection. What made Lincoln great was the fact that even though he was conflict adverse. Mm-hmm. When his morals and his principles, based on fact, convinced him that something was wrong, he objected. Mm. And he objected to the point where it cost him politically and ultimately cost him his life. Yeah. He was a one-term Whig congressman. He was one of the few people to oppose our invasion of Mexico for the Mexican-American War, knowing it was going to cost him his seat. And it did. And he never, ever regretted it. Mm-hmm. So I talk about the fact that we live in a time where people are angry as hell, but not angry enough to actually object in an effective, principled manner. We're great yellers. We're like junkyard dogs. We'll bark at anything and we'll snarl at anything and we'll bite anybody that's vulnerable. What Lincoln did was make himself the master of the facts of every situation. (laughs) When he had to make a decision, If the decision involved violating what he knew to be right, he didn't do it. And the power and the courage it takes to object has been lost in our country. Definitely. Definitely. So that's that's the L. The L is for love, which sounds goofy, but I'm gonna here's my theory on this. Abe Lincoln's bodyguard said it was frustrating to try to describe Lincoln to other people. He saw him every day for years, and he could never quite get the words to describe what Lincoln, what made him so great. Mm-hmm. And the bodyguard said, Tad Lincoln, who, if he were alive today, would have been diagnosed as, as on the autism scale and with learning disability, 
back then he was just considered badly uh, behaved. Wow. Tad Lincoln would break into cabinet meetings. And, mm-hmm. Lincoln, and you know, this is a time when spare the rod, spoil the child was the view. This was, people criticized Lincoln for being too loving to his sons. Mm-hmm. And when Tad would interrupt the meeting, Lincoln would get down on his knees and listen and take his, however long it took for Tad to get out what he had to say. And, and Lincoln's bodyguard said that was Lincoln. Wow. All the things he saw, he said, it showed the great heart of the man. And it showed the fact that Lincoln loved and could be loved. Now, in all the Lincoln books I read, they talk about the relationship that he had with various women that he got engaged with and his reactions to when they ended the relationship. And they talk about how horrible Mary Todd was. <laughs> my, my theory is they loved each other and they were both weird people. And <laughs> it's kind of a miracle they found each other. And from the outside, it looked tumultuous. Mm-hmm. It did hit him a lot. Uh, and yet, everything they ever wrote and everything they ever did speaks of love. And on the last day of his life, they took a carriage ride where they talked about what they would do when they retired and how they would travel the world together. Mm-hmm. And so I seriously think that, that um, what's missing in our country is love for fellow Americans. There you go. And that seems like an obvious point. But I don't know. I seem to I seem to uh, yearn for it, and I don't see it. There was a time when we loved mm-hmm. one another because we were Americans. Yeah, I mean, you saw like nine eleven, how we came together as Americans. So it's happening. It's, yeah. it, it's got to happen again. And then uh, the last step is is uh, I think portrayed beautifully in Steven Spielberg's movie Lincoln. And the step is now. We have to do it now. Yeah. We can't wait any longer for someone else to get elected. We can't wait any longer for, God forbid, some tragedy to bring us together. Each one of us as American citizens have an obligation to be Lincoln. There you go. And if we don't do it, we have no one to blame but ourselves if things don't get better. And that's all the more reason to get everyone to buy the book so we can get everybody on board. Well, listen, I've got kids in, in school. I, I have... I, this shirt was on sale, but it's not free. Order, folks. He's got kids in college, man. The, I, uh, I'm still paying uh, off the stovetop hat. <laughs> there you go. Well, I like the love part in the the Americans coming together part. One thing I found is I'm I'm at the middle. I'm, I'm a middle dem, a moderate Democrat, so I'm kind of in the middle, and I I've learned to look at both sides and understand what they want. Maybe what they're trying to do is not the right way to do it, but that's why we debate as Americans. We, we, we argue the points and respectfully, hopefully, and lovingly, hopefully. But I've started whenever I get into some sort of political engagement, which I try and avoid as much as possible. But you know, maybe there's something that, you know, with someone who has a kind of a more open mind, I'll, I'll lay a foundation. I'll say, look, we can talk about you know the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and whatever if you want. But here's the foundation we're running on. You and I are both Americans. That's the Constitution. This is the baseline. And everything else is built upon that. So 
we we need to operate from the fact that the one thing that matters more than anything else is that we're Americans and that there's a constitution that keeps us as, uh, together. And all this other BS that's piled on top of it, we can talk about it, but we always need to recognize that we are both American. Because so many people, they get in this thing like, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican. And then, you know, it's battle on, you know, and like you say, you know, we need to remember that we're, we're all Americans. We're technically on the same team, really. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a wonder to me that, that uh, I never thought in my lifetime we would lose that thread. Yeah. Uh, and so we just have to get it back. You know, Lincoln is a great model for it because uh, Lincoln always uh, ignored insults. And, mm -hmm. and there's so many examples of it. My favorite one is his Secretary of War, Seward, was uh, quoted in a newspaper as calling Lincoln a baboon. Wow. And uh, Lincoln said, uh, I'm not insulted that he called me a baboon. What worries me is he said it and he's usually right. <laughs> That's a great talent to have to be able to spin, you know, an insult back like that. Yeah, well, it's, it's it, but it, it's a learned behavior, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's not something that Lincoln necessarily did his whole life. And, and mm -hmm. I talk about when, when, he could be very insulting and very sarcastic and very, I dare say, Trumpian. Mm. And and because he was always improving, he got better. You know, it's like a comic who relies on blue language and, and obscenity to get a yeah. shot. Right? The great ones never have to do that. Um, and and so I, I guess one, I like what you're saying about the foundation of we're Americans. We have a constitution. I love that. I'll, t I'll tell you the, the, the thing that Lincoln used to do, which I think is also useful, whether he it was in trial and in court or dealing with Congress or dealing with the South to the degree he could, Lincoln always conceded every point that he could. Hmm. He always focused on what the primary issue was that he could not compromise on. And then for the most part, gave everything else up. You know, that's a really great analogy, too, because, I mean, here we demand everything. We won't give up a, a, a line item sent for, you know, it's got to be our way or the highway. That's right. That's the way both sides bark at each other. And, and think, think about it. We just avoided the 22nd government shutdown yeah. in American history. The first one was in 1976. Mm -hmm. okay. Abe Lincoln kept the federal government open. Every day of his administration, 24 hours a day, the, the offices opened up Monday at 9 a.m. and closed at 3 p.m. every single day like they had before the war and as they continue to do after the war. How did he do it? Well, one way he did it was he sent a special message to Congress on July 4th, 1864, saying, in essence, the citizens have the right to the continuity of government. Mm -hmm. And those in government have no right to break that continuity. Well, you know what? You can give a lot in these government shutdown talks, but you can't give that. Yeah. And so, you know, here we're just talking and just two, two Amish fellas, you know, chewing the fat. But we've already come up with three pretty solid ways to handle those people in all our lives who don't think we're wrong, don't just think we're wrong, but in being wrong, think we're evil. There you go. 
You know, I, I, I love the idea that you say where uh, he was willing to concede stuff, and but he still had that one principle, like you talked about, that he was willing to object to right. in, the, in the Owen Lincoln. Um, and I, I like that idea. You know, I've, I've sat down as a moderate, and, and you know, I've gone the gambit. I, and I was uh, up until George Bush uh, W. in the uh, – in the uh, – the uh who was this in the cheney presidency um i you know i was supporting the republicans i was a republican up until that that uh the the uh the cheney administration (laughs) (laughs) um the uh yeah you remember who was really running the country um the uh and then i i said enough of this i his idiocy uh, w's idiocy was beyond me Uh, i was embarrassed which is which is funny because i I can't imagine being a Republican now. And then I went to being a Democrat and a liberal and and the extreme sort of left, if you will. And now I find myself at the moderation uh, middle. And I can look at both parties, even the extremes, and go, okay, what are they trying to achieve? Okay, Republicans really love family. They're, they, they're really... They're into family, and 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 they see some of the things that the left are supporting as tearing apart the family. Okay, so they want that now. Maybe some of the things they're trying to do to achieve or ensure families maybe aren't the best healthy thing for everybody. So how can we somehow give them what they want and need and create that balance? And I think there needs to be more of that. You know I, that I couldn't agree more. And, and no. which reminds me of the fourth thing that made Lincoln so great and so useful for our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, even for a lawyer and even for a guy who loved surveying and carried with him for the rest of his life Euclid's geometric proofs because he found them comforting, mm-hmm. Lincoln was obsessed with facts. He was renowned for taking a lot of time to question a lot of people before he made a decision. Mm-hmm. Drove his cabinet crazy and they mistook his desire to get the facts for a kind of a a mental deficiency. But the lawyers who used to travel the circuit with him said, Lincoln had an unbelievable talent for keeping emotion out of it Mm. and to take nothing on faith, but to on his own, go out and walk the scene of the crime or look at the evidence himself or whatever it was, because he believed facts were better than truth. Hmm. And here's why. We live in an age where people say to me, without irony, well, that's my truth. <laughs> that's your truth. We used to, you know, there's a term for that, which, we, which was, you know, insane. What do you yeah. mean, your uh, truth, right? That's what I tell my psychiatrist every day. But, but, but the point is, and I say in the book, you know, truth has a great reputation, but it doesn't deserve Right? <laughs> the problem with truth is you can't prove a truth right mm-hmm. the deepest truths that each of us have are, are faith-based yeah which is why our founding fathers knew truth is a wonderful thing faith is a wonderful thing you can't be lincoln without faith and i talk about that i'm mm-hmm. a person of faith but you know what our founding fathers knew faith has no place in the public sphere that's true because it's not fact-based Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you brought up the, the example of one party seems to be very pro-family and, and pro-kids, and, and that's that's fine. That's great. We should all be that way. Mm-hmm. The question is, when we get to the hard fact of a public policy, mm-hmm. 
who's going to pay for it, how we're going to pay for it, how we know it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Those are fact-based inquiries, right? That you don't, you're not entitled to use your truth against my truth in that argument. <laughs> and, and if you do, you know, we're playing baseball and you brought a hockey stick. <laughs> it makes no sense. That's a good analogy, yeah. You know, my psychiatrist says that to me. He'll be like, you know, Chris, you have eight personalities. And I'll be like, well, that's my truth. And he's like, yeah, but you need to get fixed. And I'll be like, yeah, that's your, your, your truth, buddy. So, yeah. yeah no, the thing is, we, in my first book, you mentioned uh, Lawyers, Liars, and the Art of Storytelling. Mm -hmm. I, I, I talk about the fact that, you know, the power of narrative, the power of story. And every great story has three legs ethos, pathos, and logos, which is you, 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 every great story has a great storyteller who you have faith in. It has a logic that's inherent to it. In some way, it touches you, pathos. We live in an age where the only thing anybody ever wants to talk about is the pathos. Mm -hmm. I feel this. I'm angry about that. Um, and it, it, it ignores the credibility and logic that's supposed to be the other two legs of the in interaction. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln is a great example of a guy who lived by logic, credibility. And so great was his logic, so great was his credibility that people were moved by it. I mean, he wrote the greatest speeches, arguably, in the English language yeah. in American history. And they're not long. The Emancipation Proclamation isn't long either. And, and the Gettysburg Address was sure sweet. Was was short, sweet, and not the uh, not the main star, right? The the yeah. uh, the fellow who spoke 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 for four hours. They had to build a little latrine so he could relieve himself during the speech, and mm -hmm. nobody remembers a single thing he said. The fact the guy was the president of Harvard is just sad. But, wow, you know. this is crazy. You know, you 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 bring up a good some good points, and and some of them uh, fall back to what you said earlier: the self reliance. The intelligence, you know, I, I meet so many people nowadays that get that get their political knowledge from memes, like, <laughs> like well, I, I'll be talking to somebody and they're like, "Hey, you know, Biden just did this the other day," and I'm like, "What?" And you know, it's some meme clip that they've pulled, or, you know, of something, and I'm like, "Are you getting all your news from memes? Like, you're just you're on TikTok, and that's how Chris, you get your news?" Explain this to me. You're in two thousand. Not really. We live in a country where everybody uh, presents themselves as kind of cynical and, and hard-boiled and, and doesn't trust the man and doesn't trust the, the powers that be, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they'll see a meme on the same platform that they like to see kittens on, and they're 100% in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it must, it's, if it has kittens, it can't be wrong. Well, yeah. that's why. I mean, the kittens then, yeah. It's, uh, it's well, how you always know. What's terrible is I'm I'm a, I'm a very handsome sixty years old, and I'm old enough to remember people from the sixties and the seventies saying, you know, basically, don't believe anything a corporation says because they're just out for money, and don't buy shit that people are trying to sell you because they just want money. And if somebody tells you something and they're screaming at you, there's a pretty good chance they're screaming at you because they don't have any facts. I remember when people used to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a commercial break here. Amazon is a great place to buy all your products. <laughs> Chris, you're a funny guy. I'm telling you. I try. I try. We have good days and bad days. Podcasts.
I should, I should. Uh, and one of the things else I wanted to note, um, you know, you talk about the intellect and the logic and the self-reliance. We've really become this uh, society, in my opinion, this is my truth, um, where we have this victimhood competition society, I think. Everyone seems to be competing to be the biggest victim. And everyone knows it's me, but everyone wants to steal, see, seem to steal it from me. But you see that on news. You see, you read that on every article leads with, I was a victim of this. I was, a, you know, it's like, I, uh, Whoopi, uh, what's her name? Whoopi uh, Goldberg on The View. She had that famous uh, conundrum, or not conundrum, but, you know, muck up that she had where she was, she, she was trying, she ended up saying she was trying to do a, uh, a, uh, a competition of victimhood between Jewish people in the Holocaust and black people with races in America and, and what they experienced for 400 years. And by doing it in the way she played it, she, you know, she, she tried to be dismissive of, well, the Jewish Holocaust wasn't as bad as what black people went through. And then she got a lot of hate for it, but it was, a, it was an example to me of, uh, and that's kind of where my light bulb went on. I'm like, we live in this society where people are just trying to out competition each other for being the biggest victim instead of what you talked about with uh, Abe Lincoln with being self-reliant and, and using logic. We're really in an emotional thing where everyone's just emotional about everything. Well, just what I was saying about pathos has sort of become the crack cocaine of storytelling, of mm -hmm. narrative, of personal narrative, political narrative. We're not interested in what the best policy is based on the facts. We're interested in what's the most emotional and the most upsetting and the most outrageous, et cetera. There you go. There you and, go. Uh, we've got to get better. We've got to improve. We've got to get back to intelligent, rational debates. We all know it. But you know what? We put ourselves in this position when we killed the public education system in our country, when we yeah. stopped teaching civics, when we stopped teaching how democracy works. Yeah. Alex de Tocqueville came to the United States in the 1850s, Frenchman, and he came for one reason. He noticed that France and the United States both had a revolution in the, in the late 18th century. Mm -hmm. France lasted about seven years and then became Napoleon's empire. America continued to be a democracy. Mm -hmm. Tocqueville asked, why? What's the difference? And it's not because I'm a lawyer. It's just a fact that Tocqueville said that the only difference is lawyers and the Constitution. That in America, you have a class of people who make the Constitution a reality. And that in courts, regular citizens get to come in and serve as jurors. That's it. And how fragile a thing is that? De Tocqueville said he was worried that popular media, newspapers, were going to, at some point, let a demagogue get people so riled up against democracy and all its sort of complications mm -hmm. that the people themselves will vote a demagogue in. Yeah. Become a tyrant. Yeah. And... Uh, it, it, nobody says this is guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> nobody. I, you know, it, it's, it, in talking to you about this, I feel so strongly about it. I, I now kind of wish I had written a better book. I think it's great what you did. Uh, you'll be fine. Uh, right? That's what you saved the second book for. You know, you got to fulfill That's that right. contract. Well, right? I think from that, the second book should be yeah, 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 twice yeah. as expensive and, uh, and better. 
Yeah, because we, you know, we have all the big book author companies on. You know, they're going to be, they're going to be. You get this book out tomorrow. They're t- on the fourth. They're going to be like, hey, so what do you got next? What do you got next? <laughs> um, uh, but no, you bring up a good point. I mean, we're we are at that conflux right now. They we're we're seeing populism rise everywhere, especially in Europe. In fact, uh, I think it's Slovakia yeah. just uh, installed a uh, populist. Uh, government. Uh, we've seen. We saw uh, Italy uh, go back to the party of Mussolini, um, and then of course the Slovakia thing is going to muck up what's going on with Ukraine and, and the kind of wall of support that we've had. Um, I was disturbingly listening to a Senate uh, a senator on Face the Nation a couple weeks ago, who literally said out of his mouth, he he said, "Well, you know, maybe it is time for populism to come to America." A senator, not not one of those house, you know, those house kids running around. This is a center, and I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" And uh, but you're right; their democracy is not guaranteed. But I think your book comes at a at a great time where we are at that moment. You know, we're 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 like going from president to president on whether or not this democracy, this great experimentation, this great experiment is going to go. You know, I mean, we were just, for those watching 10 to 15 years, Mark Milley was just calling out uh, and, and talking about some of the things uh, that went on. And, and I don't think anyone knows how close we came to the precipice than him. When you really look at January 6th and the turning over the Trump presidency to Biden, there were really five people who stood in the way. There was Milley. There was, I think, two people at the Justice Department. Uh, and then there was Mike Pence. And I think there's probably another one. But really... It came down to five people, um, and that's pretty scary when you really think about it. And and nobody really, everyone's like, yeah, whatever. Democracy's been here; it'll be here next week. We'll be fine. Uh, turn on the, see what Flo's doing on the Bachelor or whatever the hell. You know, it's kind of where we're at. But yeah. you you early early in our discussion, you brought up the great point that so many people are disaffected and angered by politics that they don't care anymore, and that's how the evil take power. The good men do nothing. So there you go. Uh, give us any final thoughts or tease outs or pitches you want to do on the book uh, to get people ordered up. Uh, I uh, We have a podcast that's associated with it called How to Be Abe Lincoln with the great character actor Greg Grunberg, who's a good friend. And uh, we have Mayim Bialik is our first guest. And, uh, you know, I, I hope this book is something that people maybe give to their friends or to their kids or read themselves because uh, it, it's intended to be funny. Because mm-hmm. Lincoln was funny, and a book about Lincoln that's not funny is a kind of a lie. Yeah, it's also meant to be, you know, practical. Something you can actually do that will make your life better. And uh, and I'm really I'm really grateful for the chance to talk to you about it. There you go. And I, we're think, glad to have you on as well. Very honored. Um, you know, and comedy is so great because it's such a great way to deliver truth and and help people see the fallacies or the hypocrisies of, of human nature in our ways you know we we do that on the show we we think we do it on the show infotainment you know people like stephen colbert and his show and other people they can talk about really hard politics that people just go oh man i want to talk about that today but being able to spin it in a, in a, in a funny sense you know makes it so that we look at stuff and we go oh yeah we are kind of being silly human beings about something that we really shouldn't. So it's great for that. So thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you coming by. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. 
Thank you. And thanks, Modest, for tuning in. Order the book wherever fine books are sold. Stay away those alley bookstores because you, you know, might get tetanus in them. How to Be Abe Lincoln, Seven Steps to Leading a Legendary Life. Uh, go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and Chris Foss One on the tickety talkity for the kids. Thanks for tuning in. Be good. Just stay to, be good to each other. And we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>